0: Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear, your host. Hope you're enjoying your weekend so far and that that enjoying continues throughout the weekend. Hey, we've talked many times on the show about the concept of probable cause and what that really means. This all derives from that phrase in the Fourth Amendment that says no warrant shall issue except upon probable cause. And our founders weren't, particularly interested in defining what that means there's been a significant development which i knew was going to happen and we'll get into some more detail about it but it has to do with the fact that cbd cannabidiol um hemp products are legal in the state of wisconsin and what impact that has on probable cause and there's been a case that is brewing it's way up through the system that addresses how that impacts a traditional probable cause analysis. But let's discuss what that means a little bit further. Probable cause is this, you know, undefined concept. And if we break it down into its two words, probable meaning, what, more likely than not, I guess, and cause that there is a, a connection, Okay like a causal effect or a causal link. So the problem is that, again, it's not defined um, even in in any terms in the Constitution. It's just a concept that the courts have had to interpret over the years in various ways and, and try to add some meaning to that so that it's a workable um, phrase, so that we have some sense of what what it's supposed to mean. Now, probable cause could actually mean different things in different contexts. So, for example, the level that's required to sustain a bind over at a preliminary hearing, we use the term probable cause there, but we also use it in the context of when there's probable cause for an arrest, or if there's probable cause to administer a chemical test, or probable cause to issue a warrant for a search, and so on. And in each context, it's kind of interesting the way the courts grapple with it, because they will say, okay, in that, in this particular context, it means this. But now that we're talking about something else, it means something else. So the, the most common and basic way of describing probable cause is that it's more than a hunch, it's more than suspicion, it's more than... Uh, guesswork but it's not absolute certainty so the idea being you can't really be certain about anything ever so probable cause means you know having a a firm basis in belief something to which you can say that there is a a reason and you can connect it to a set of facts right so uh the courts also are make attempts over the years to put it in language that is also useful in the field for a police officer to grasp what that concept means and you know there's various ways of training police so that they can factor a number of things together and if it adds up to in that subjective opinion that there is this quote unquote probable cause then the investigation can go further it's really designed as you can tell by the wording of the fourth amendment to be a limitation on power just like most things in the constitution are supposed to be a limitation on what the government uh, can do so in other words uh it, no general warrants are allowed meaning a warrant that the type of warrant that applies to everybody all the time under all circumstances because remember that was something that was very bad about uh, the pre-revolutionary war period when colonists were being treated you know, very poorly as it relates to their individual rights. And because the colonies were considered, you know, sort of a lesser form of government, there was no um, really consideration for citizen rights. And of course, that led to the revolution, right? And all the, the things that we did as a country Uh, a blossoming country at the time, to distinguish ourselves from that um, uh, period of time when uh, there were troubles, troubles with the government. Now, clearly, those troubles have persisted in spite of all that. You know, I often think how odd it would be to the founders if they could flash forward so many hundred years and see how things actually panned out. Because it's very clear to me that the government has a much different role than what they had originally imagined. And that's one thing that it, this isn't a political comment at all. But I think it's something that ideally, the less the government does, the less the intrusion that the government has in your life, You know, the more that our individual rights and freedoms are protected. Of course, back when the Constitution was drafted and when the Bill of Rights were put into effect, um, it was a very different world. We didn't have, you know, the types of um, problems that exist in the modern world and you know, terrorism and, and uh, gang violence and such were not really concepts that were envisioned at the time. And all the modern technology that is at play here where people can become victims of crime in so many different ways that were not, didn't exist back then. Cybercrime, you know identity theft all kinds of things that the modern world presents challenges that how do we make it all work in the context of this document that is supposed to give us the foundation the foundation for our society our society to to be built upon from there so think about it this way in giving remember there were not cops there was no such thing as police when the constitution happened, right? It was the idea of what the government is and what the government does. And actually in the early days of dealing with some of how police forces would interact with citizens, there was a legitimate question about what is this, is this the government or isn't it? I mean, that's actually a threshold question you have to address. The police acting on behalf of an organized you know, community, was again something that, in a, in a non-military context, was a bit a bit foreign at the time. So it is clear, though, in the analysis properly said, yes, okay, police are executing laws. That among, that the legislature puts together the judiciary uh, is what interpret you know interprets, but the executive function is what enforces the law. So when enforcing the law and you're an officer in uniform, then obviously you're participating in part of the government. But um, going beyond that and what it means for everyday life, it's supposed to, this whole concept of probable cause is supposed to give average everyday citizens the ability to have confidence, so to speak, that the government isn't overreaching, isn't going too far. In what it's trying to accomplish in its goals. So we get to the issue of when the police are looking for investigating uh, criminal activity, potentially criminal activity, and under what circumstances is an officer allowed to cross that threshold and actually um, interfere with or affect someone's individual rights. So all along, for many, many years, it's been kind of standard fare that if an officer believes that he or she detects the unmistakable odor of burning marijuana, that it provides probable cause to take action. Usually it's in the context of a traffic stop or some other encounter um, where the police are there legitimately doing something legitimately and this the detection of this so-called odor turns it into the next level of investigation now they're looking for criminal activity so you can see where i'm going with this um now that there are products on the market that are perfectly legal that are indistinguishable from marijuana at least in terms of appearance odor And so on. How does that affect that good old-fashioned way of detecting crime by the unmistakable odor of marijuana? And by the way, this is something that has a very long history of controversy, because um, you know that it's always termed the unmistakable odor of marijuana. Well, we'll talk about that and how this has evolved into the current legal issue that we see confronting us right after these messages. Welcome back. So I wanted to touch briefly on why it is that CBD products are legal in Wisconsin. I I don't know if you noticed this, but there isn't a law out there that says, hey, we've legalized CBD products and the legislature, you know, drafts a bill that says so. That actually doesn't exist. Um, What it is, is it was the farm bill that came out a few years ago. And it provided for um, the ability for farmers to obtain a permit and to legally produce hemp products, including those containing CBD. And this was designed to be an economic stimulus type uh, situation. And it was designed to open up Business opportunities for people that wanted to get into that type of business. And, they, and so that there's government oversight, so that there's accountability, there's permitting, there's inspection, there's quality control, and all of that. But it was also meant to naturally create um, commerce for the state and primarily for people that live within the state. You know, of course, there can be export involved as well, but the idea was. In order to kind of foster this new business opportunity, um, the Attorney General's office ha- of the state of Wisconsin had to take a look at how can that law actually be implemented effectively and I- if it were true that CBD products were you know, illegal. And interestingly, it required an Attorney General written opinion that said, hey, you know, in the opinion of the Attorney General of Wisconsin, and therefore the Department of Justice, um, CBD products are legal, and here's why. And they go through the whole process of what the Farm Bill was attempting to do and how it was implemented, and that obviously if this is something that's being given uh, authority, approval, by the legislature, then it would be utterly meaningless (laughs) to say that the products themselves that are being produced are illegal. So it was almost like a by-default conclusion that was reached as a result of uh, that Farm Bill. In light of that, uh, actually it took quite a few months for basically every, every county in the state to consider cbd products to be legal and now of course you can see him in the supermarket but initially there was a question about you know what is the legality of this whole thing and before that attorney general opinions uh came out there were people that had already made that determination on their own and were getting busted (laughs) you know for having cbd products and there were certain counties not Sheboygan county but certain others that took a hardline approach and did actually prosecute people for being in possession of hemp. So anyway, that's that's the background. Flash forward to right now, today, where it is universal throughout the state of Wisconsin that, you know, there are these products are perfectly legal. Now there's a definition that it has to contain less than a certain amount of THC, but as close to zero as possible is the goal but as you're probably aware, it's very difficult to achieve like absolute zero THC in the product because of the way it's made. Uh, there are products that that have been tested and are certified as containing 0% THC. That's that's true. But um, there, there are products that contain a trace amount and still fit within the uh, definition of hemp or CBD. So here's the thing. Uh, look at what you can buy in the store now at you know the grocery store they have all those balms and creams and lotions and things like that that have cbd but you can go to one of these other cbd outlets and you can buy it in all different forms including smokable form and including you know it's in its basic i don't know what you call it you know like bud form or whatever that sounds kind of odd to say but you know what I mean? It looks like good old classic, you know, contraband marijuana when you buy it in a bag at the store, right? So you, you smell this stuff, and of course, it smells like marijuana because that's basically the only difference between the two is the THC, which you can't smell. Or at least I haven't heard of an officer say that they can tell the difference because they can't, because nobody can it, it's impossible because there, there, there is no difference in the actual odor that's produced or the smoke or anything like that. And someone smokes a CBD hemp, you know, cigarette, it's going to smell exactly like marijuana. Um, you know, because it is essentially <laughs> it just doesn't have the THC. So <clears throat> uh, you can see where this is going to create an issue because that was like one of those go-to things that cops would always go towards to say, well, you know, I was interacting with so-and-so and and I detected the unmistakable odor of burning marijuana. Um, And then that would lead to usually an arrest or something like that. But years ago I had several cases where I actually litigated the issue of, is it in fact um, such a unique odor that it's, quote-unquote, unmistakable. And there there had been a number of, you know, experiments and studies and things like that, that several, um, you know, products on the market or, or things in the world can appear to have that odor when, in fact, it's not marijuana. Um, but <laughs> the way that that all panned out, just so you know, is that, even if there are innocent explanations for something, that doesn't mean that an officer has to investigate so thoroughly that they eliminate uh, all the possibilities of things being having an innocent explanation. Which really just makes that definition of probable cause even harder to, to nail down. Because when we say an officer isn't required to eliminate innocent explanations for what he or she sees, hears smells, etc., then what does it mean? You know, And I get what they're saying. That concept is actually designed to make it so it's not like an impossible test to follow or an impractical or unworkable equation, even though it's not mathematical. So put another way, if uh, an officer thinks that they see something happening, and it's logical and reasonable for any reasonable officer in that position to believe the same thing. They're not required to investigate the matter so thoroughly that they eliminate all possibility of it of it being something other than what they believe. You know, that kind of makes sense. I get it. But on the other hand, it just makes it so so much more uh, unworkable in my mind that. That it's, If they're not required to eliminate innocent activity from what they believe they see, it, it means they can say that they have probable cause all the time for all kinds of situations. And it kind of really waters down the meaning behind the whole thing. So anyway, getting back to this issue about the odor of, of marijuana, um, it's finally hit the courts. There is a case that's out there that it discusses the fact that it is common knowledge and an officer can't hide behind, you know, ignorance anymore, but it's common knowledge that the existence and prevalence of these CBD products has to be taken into account. Previously, and the way that courts have ruled on this issue is that Taking into account such things as, well, it would be pretty rare for somebody to have this because these products are not commonly available. Whoop, not true anymore. Or very few people actually ingest CBD products. Yep, That's not true anymore either. Um, or to say that, you know, the manner in which someone was consuming this product seemed to me to be consistent with illegal activity. Not true anymore, right? So, if we also know that they don't have to explore all innocent explanations for the same thing. Oh, and by the way, how do you do that (laughs) in this situation? You know, let's say somebody's smoking a good old-fashioned marijuana joint in their car, and cops come up and they say, Ooh, I think I smell the odor of marijuana. And then they ask the person, Hey, is that marijuana you're smoking? And they say, Nope, it's CBD. Are the police required to believe him? No, of course not. <laughs> so, but again, th- this is kind of where it, it, it's, it's, it's we're at a crossroads for, as far as where the law is taking us, but the reality of it may be a lot less significant when we see it actually pan out, but we shall see. Anyway, it is time for a break, and we'll be right back after these messages, so stay tuned. And we're back. We left off talking about the... Odor of marijuana and what that means as it relates to probable cause to either arrest somebody, get a warrant, whatever, and the fact that um, CBD products are, are now very prevalent. So there's a case where that's exactly what happened. Um, an officer uh, believed that, smelled marijuana, uh, turns out that it was CBD, and the question finally has arisen, where if it's something that is both legal and fairly prevalent, is it logical or reasonable to fit within what we want the Fourth Amendment to mean if an officer can still execute a warrant and find other stuff or or execute a search, let's say, of the car. Let's say they find a gun or let's say they find anything. That's, uh, you know, later turns into charges. Is that an interference with our liberties that should be tolerated, given the fact that it really shouldn't be considered a rare occurrence anymore, that someone is in possession of CBD rather than THC? So, again, as it's been going so far, the typical response has been from the courts that, well, it might be CBD. It could be but the officer isn't in a position to verify that one way or the other. They don't have like chemical tests right there that they can conduct. They do, but let me just point this out. There's something called the Ducanoy-Levine field test. And if you've heard about these field tests, it's kind of like a screening test. It's not an accurate laboratory test. It's not admissible in court, um, but they can be used there on the scene. Now, the problem with that is that you have to take a sample, you have to break this little vial, you have to shake it around, you have to wait for it to react, and then you have to see what the color is, and does that match with the little guide for what color it should be, if it contains blah blah blah. So it's not accurate, it's time consuming, and it's almost you know completely counter to the notion that an officer should be able to make a decision right there on the spot, on the scene as to what's, what's going on. So... For years now, the the deference has gone to the police to say yes, it's true. Some yes, yes, CBD is legal. Yes, someone could be smoking something that contains CBD and doesn't contain THC, and yes, it looks exactly the same. But because police aren't required to uh, eliminate all uh, you know legal explanations for the, that what they see, it's been part of the process. So cops were able to say on the stand yes i considered that it could be but i wasn't sure and i don't know if the person's telling me the truth or not so i conducted a search okay fine um but it gets to a certain point it reaches a threshold where if it's something that is just part of everyday life for a lot of people doesn't have to be everybody But if it's part of everyday life for a lot of people, why would that necessarily lead one to suspect criminal activity? And that's the point. You know, way back in the day, (laughs) love that expression, but back in the day, police were trained in all sorts of different ways on how to detect if someone may be in possession of contraband. And one of my favorites was, you know, you've seen people driving around with the little Grateful Dead bears, you know, little jeer bears on their car, like dancing, dancing bears or whatever they call them. Or a sticker that says Led Zeppelin or something. Um, Police used to be trained that that's plenty of reason to pull somebody over and see if they've, you know, they've got drugs just based on their bumper sticker. I mean, that used to be part of how they were trained. (laughs) So think about that. If your freedom of expression is that you want to tell the world that you're a fan of the Grateful Dead, well, you better not put a bumper sticker on because that means you're going to get pulled over. Isn't that? That seems silly. Unfortunately, that was you know several decades ago. When um, when we've moved on beyond that, I mean, I don't know of any judge nowadays that would consider that to be a legitimate traffic stop. Back then, sure, lots of judges, judges on the bench would say. What is this Grateful Dead that you tell me about? Uh, tell me more. I don't understand. Is this a band? Do they make music? What do they do? Does it have anything to do with consuming drugs? Oh, it does. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and so on. So, okay. So that would have been something that even back then was sort of a an odd way of looking at things. But certainly we can see how odd it is now. So, with the fact that we have changes in society, when things change, can you rely upon previous uh, training, previous, you know, quote-unquote, knowledge in making these legal determinations that can definitely affect your liberty? Now, let's put aside the fact that a lot of people will say in response, well, hey, if he had a gun that he shouldn't have had, or if he had some other drugs that, that the person wasn't supposed to have or whatever evidence of crime they find, then where's the harm? Because they were able to detect crime as part of this search. We have to think about, first of all, the end doesn't justify the means. You've heard that phrase before. That's exactly what it means. It means that you can't say, hey, even though there was no probable cause, turns out dude had drugs, so no, no harm, no foul. Or, better put, good because we caught the bad guy anyway. You know, even if there wasn't initially a reason to believe it, it turns out that that hunch was right. Well, it's problematic if you look at things that way, both from a legal standpoint, but also logically speaking, because we also have to think about the the offense to our rights that occurs when uh, police do interfere with us in any way where it's not justified because of course the huge risk there is that getting pulled over for or and having gun being subjected to a search being detained and being interfered with from your you know regular routine your activities doing what you want to do it is something that is not to be tolerated it simply cannot be so we might look at it as a minor inconvenience. Oh, okay, I'm being pulled over. Okay, cop thinks this is uh, marijuana, but it's actually CBD. I don't have a problem with that. Nope, nope, officer, no problem. Yeah, you can search my car. Um, whatever. Whatever permutations this, this scenario takes, we have to remember that you just can't be complacent and say, hey, you know, I don't have anything to worry about anyway because I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't have anything illegal on me, so I'm not worried and I don't care. It's the wrong attitude, because it, what it means is that the thing that's being, that is guarded, the thing that is valued in the exercise of our rights, means that that interference should never have happened to begin with. Because the, the default position in how you live your life in American society is that you're not going to be prevented from doing whatever you're doing if the police don't have any reason to. Because that would be a general warrant. That would be without probable cause. That would change the fabric of our society. It would change our relationship with the government. Dramatically. You know, very, very clearly. So that's why these things take on such significant proportions. And it's not just the individual circumstances that led to a discussion of the law in court or in an appellate opinion um it's it's how it's implemented in everyday life and it's how it affects trends in how law enforcement deal with these types of issues so yeah we'll see what ends up happening with this case i'll give you an update as it winds its way on up but um still sort of a work in progress and i'll be interested to see how permutations of this the ramifications of this are going forward and you know we can kind of spin it on its head and and look at it from the other perspective like what does this do if the courts do recognize the fact that um, the odor of CBD can't provide probable cause you know where does it go from here Um, does that mean that they can't inquire any further they can't even ask Or if they do ask, they have to accept that answer. Um, It reminds me of a case many years ago that dealt with the odor of alcohol. And this case ultimately came down to say that the odor of alcohol all by itself, with no other factors that could affect probable cause, just the odor of alcohol, cannot be probable cause you see the analogy here, right? With the CBD situation, the odor of CBD alone, the odor of marijuana, whatever the officer thinks alone all by itself can't be probable cause. So it's interesting though, because that decision has been criticized, the one dealing with the odor of alcohol over the years. We'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. We were talking about the decision years ago where our appellate courts in Wisconsin held that the odor of alcohol alone cannot be probable cause for an arrest for drunk driving and how that is sort of what we're talking about here. Um, so think about that: is it Does it make sense to say that if all an officer detects is the odor of alcohol, is that enough to act on and say they're going to arrest somebody? Uh, because of what they smell and of course <laughs> we are we do live in wisconsin right where there is a culture of tolerance for consuming alcohol not drinking and driving but consuming you know consuming alcohol and the fact that it is perfectly legal to consume some alcohol and then drive there isn't a prohibition on that that's that's not the law never has been probably never will be well it might be someday but so far, it isn't. Um, so, in other words, you can have a drink or two, and if that doesn't produce a state of impairment, which it normally wouldn't, but it does produce the odor of alcohol, the unmistakable odor of alcohol, by the way, then we know from case law and developments in the both the legislative aspect and judicial interpretation of law that you can't. Uh, charge somebody, arrest somebody, and then continue an investigation based on probable cause. But here's the thing, it hardly ever comes down to just an odor of intoxicants, because now granted, I tend to see these things after the person's already been arrested and brought in and, you know, processed, and there's been a determination that they were in fact over the legal limit, but I'm talking about the process of investigating that leading up to it. And there are a number of different things. What I see in the reports, again, I don't see the ones where somebody's, where the cops let them go. I see the ones after someone's been arrested, right? Because that's why they come and hire me, um, where it'll there's other information that an officer will include in there, just so it's never something as simple as just um, the odor of intoxicants. And they'll say things like, the speech seemed very slow and deliberate, I always wonder what that means, deliberate speech. And by the way, if you were speaking with a police officer, wouldn't you be as deliberate as possible in your speech, even if you've done nothing wrong? (laughs) I would hope. What are you going to be like super casual and be like, yo, man, what's up? I'm being not deliberate with my speech. But, you know, because they're saying that it isn't slurred, it was just too deliberate. Uh, Again, whatever that means. So uh, then looking at other interactions that one might have the driver seemed nervous well that's very common too even if you've done nothing wrong but of course you see these things added to the report then there's this other case that's a bit problematic because it says on the roadway and during a traffic stop any officer has the right to get somebody to exit their vehicle and if if there's any reason to pursue any line of questioning so The odor of alcohol certainly is enough for the officer to say, hey, sir, can I get you? Can you please step out of your vehicle? And then see where things go from there. You know, theoretically, one should say, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. And the officer should say, oh, okay, in that case, have a good day. But that never happens because there are also cases that deal with that behavior as being indicative of consciousness of guilt. So that, that's the next topic I wanted to cover on today's show is this consciousness of guilt concept and how various behaviors that fit well within the, the range of activity that is both legal and fully protected, but can still be considered consciousness of guilt. And that's an excellent example right there. Officer pulls somebody over, thinks they smell something, and then says, I'd like you to get out of the vehicle. Now, the case law, as I just indicated previously, says the police can do that. They can say, I'd like you to step out of the vehicle so I can investigate further. And you should have the right to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And if that were to happen, they would have a quandary. But given the fact that the officer is allowed to make that inquiry and continue the investigation going in that direction, And if they were to say, well, in that case, I'm going to forcibly remove you. (laughs) You know, that happens occasionally and you have to deal with what does that mean? Um, Because on the one hand, the officer can say to anybody without probable cause as part of a quote unquote investigation that they want the person to exit the vehicle and the person generally complies with that. But when they don't, and there's literally no other reason, other than just say, hey, I want to see what's going on with this odor of intoxicants. The right answer should be that the the cop lets him go. But, you know, and hopefully that happens in some occasions. But let's talk about, um, you know, take it a step further. In both the CBD context and the alcohol context, if the officer says, hey, you know, can I just uh, verify that, You're okay to drive because I do smell the odor of intoxicants. So, I mean, I believe that you're doing something perfectly legal. But is it okay with you if I check a little further just to make sure? So, in the context of drinking, it could be something like a preliminary breath test or going through some field sobriety tests or, you know, inspecting the vehicle further, which is a search. And, you know, if it's based on the fact that, An officer says, Well, I don't, you know, even to him or herself, I don't have a reason to arrest this person, but I do want to see, you know, if I'm right or wrong about what I'm smelling here. And that can ultimately end up leading to more information that really, that threshold should never have been crossed to begin with. But we see this come up repeatedly in the case law where the courts will discuss the fact that even though one may have the right or there's nothing wrong with exercising one's rights in a particular way, it can still be an indication of consciousness of guilt. And that can be factored in with the probable cause analysis. And it gets dangerously close to, um, without actually saying so, that if one were to say, I'm not consenting to any search of my person or vehicle, that the police could interpret that to mean that they must be hiding something and think about the impact that has on the fourth amendment itself, if that were to be the case. So the reason I get concerned about this is that no, there isn't a case out there that says, Hey, I'm invoking my right to remain silent. And then that means they can get probable cause to conduct a search because one invokes their rights. But if one refuses a test of their blood or breath, Um, when the officer reads the form to them and says, will you consent to an evidentiary chemical test of your blood? And if you say no, yes, that can be used against you. And there's a number of different reasons. And we've covered that uh, in the past, but I can cover that again on a different show. And that has to do with administrative uh, consequences for that specific scenario. They've, They've envisioned that in the legislature, that it requires... Special treatment, and they've given it special treatment. (laughs) But again, it sounds dangerously close to a situation whereby one exercises their right or what they believe to be their right under the circumstances, and then it results in, you know, a penalty and sometimes a criminal penalty. Um, Just for, and in that scenario, it would basically affect their driving privileges. But it can affect um, just the, the basic analysis of when somebody is being interfered with by the government as an agent to the government. So yeah, we'll see where all that goes. It's I'm fascinated because I've been waiting to see how that's gonna break through. I've been looking for the right case to bring it up to the appellate courts, but for one reason or another I haven't I haven't had a case that has evolved to the point where I can bring that challenge. I have a couple that are out there that I'm kind of anxious to see how that will work. But, you know, it's interesting that I feel like I, I fight this battle on behalf of all of us. Um, I know that I'm usually representing somebody who's in fact done something wrong or has been accused of that in any event. But when it comes to bringing that challenge, who, who else can do it other than a defense lawyer? It, it can't be raised by anybody else. And that's what's so unique and I think, you know, honorable, frankly, about being a defense lawyer, that you have the responsibility to make sure that all of our rights are maintained on a day-to-day basis. Okay, well, that's my speech for the day. Um, Hope you have a great weekend coming up here. Enjoy the weather, hoping that it holds on. And you can tune in next week, as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This is Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.